If you don't know me, my name is Jonah Welch. I uh, have the distinct privilege and honor to open up God's Word this morning with you guys. And I feel a little weird just because it was like the one Sunday that we're doing the pastor appreciation thing. And then Joe is like, here, you just go today. Um, are we thankful for Pastor Joe? Man, Joe, we're so thankful for you. Um, as Dave already said, and I just want to continue expressing our gratitude to you as well as to Dave and to Joel. Um, there is no distinction in our minds between pastor and elder. You guys are pastors of this church as well. And um, just want to reiterate everything you said back to you. Um, I'm not going to turn to First Thessalonians because we have more pressing things now. But Dave and Joel, we are thankful for you guys and how you shepherd the flock here alongside um, Joe, Shea, and I. So we're thankful for you guys. If you guys could grab your Bibles and turn to the letter of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be taking a break from First Peter. I'm not going to get in Joe's way and take any of First Peter. Um, that's all for him. But I'm going to go to Philippians chapter 1. It's, it's something that I've been studying a lot lately and have the joy of being able to study the last few months um, with our junior high and high school students on Wednesday nights. And uh, if you are a junior high or high school student, you're just thinking, well, the heck, I just heard this sermon Wednesday night. Uh, now I have to sit through this again. Yes, you do have to sit through this again. And you know, it's going to be great. I hope. I hope it's encouraging as you hear the, these words, not what I have to say, not Jonah's thoughts and his words, but rather the words of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. And I pray that would be an encouragement to all of us. So um, like I said, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26 this morning. And the goal this morning as we read and as we study and as I preach is that I would be clear, that I would faithfully preach this text that has so much power and so much authority in it. And I pray that would be a huge encouragement to all of us, um, that we would have an understanding of what God has written. So let's start by reading. We're going to actually start reading at the end of verse 18, all the way through verse 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. If you have the ability to control your life from the moment that you were born until the day that you knew you would depart and die and leave this world, if you had the ability to give yourself everything you ever wanted, to possess the power to avoid certain things in life that would be hard and give yourself 
the best life that you could possibly live, what would you include? What would you do to make it the best life that you could possibly live? Many people, maybe you right now, as you think about this question, would immediately answer that you would fill your life with traveling, with seeing the world, with checking off all of the the top destinations, the places that only a few people have ever been. Maybe some of you, it is filling your life with the luxuries of this world. And certainly many people, we naturally tend to go there when we think about the best life that someone could live. We think about the yachts, we think about the cars, we think about the homes, we think about the vacations, we think about the relationships, we think about the marriages that we want that would give us the best life, we think about the best kids who just obey every time you tell them to do something, the teenager that isn't a punk, and I know because I spend every week with them, I know how they can be, they're not hiding anything, they're just perfect, they're the same at home as they are at school the best life possible. As I looked this up online, I I was struck with a lot of these similar answers, but I also found the technique, the formula to having the best life, the strategies, and a lot of the answers were things like this. Realize your full potential. Give your best effort in everything you do. Do the things that you love. Do the things that bring you happiness. And find love and happiness in the things or people around you. In an article from a podcast in 2021, when asked about the key tips for living a successful life, the best life, a man by the name of Elon Musk, if you've ever heard of him, broke it down in five simple ways. Be useful, contribute to society, don't try to be a leader, Read books and ingest information and talk to people. Now, by no means do I think Elon Musk is a theologian worth following or learning from his doctrine for us in the church. However, in light of maybe some useful insights for people to be successful, quote unquote, in life, Elon Musk would go on to say in this podcast why he does all that he does. What was his outlook that drove him in his life to live by those five simple things. And he goes on to say that I love humanity. And so I wish to see it prosper and do great things and be happy. The foundation of my philosophy, I'm curious about the nature of the universe. And obviously I will die. But I want to know that we are on a path to understanding the nature of the universe and the meaning of life and to expand the scope and scale of humanity and consciousness in general. That seems like a fundamentally good thing. One of the world's most successful men, a man that many people would look at and say, he has the best life. He has all the money, the power, the mind. He has everything that the world would ever want. And many of us would trade our life for his life in just a matter of a moment. Even in his knowledge and certainty of all these things in life, he knows that death will come. He knows that it'll all come to an end. 
But what drove him was that he just wants to know out of his love for humanity that humanity is on a path for more happiness and for more advancement and for more knowledge. That's what it boiled down to for Elon Musk. And that if he could just do that, then in his eyes, it would be a good life. The best life. Maybe you agree or disagree with Elon. For many, while the best life would, in, would most likely include enjoying the luxuries of this world, maybe power and wealth, the comfortability of this life, upon an initial consideration, I believe, without a doubt, that most of us, it would also include the removal of suffering. We know that suffering is something that is unavoidable. We know that death is something that is unavoidable. And Elon knows this too. Life is difficult. Life is hard. There's pain in life that words often cannot describe. There are struggles that do not resolve quickly. There are wounds too deep for healing. There are financial burdens. There is sickness and disease. There are shattered relationships. And at the very end of it all, there's death. In the midst of this certainty in life for all people, there is an answer. There is a solution. I don't want us to see life the way that the world would see life. And I know the Apostle Paul does not want us to see the world and have an outlook on life like the world or even a man like Elon Musk, who in the eyes of the world had the best life. The Apostle Paul knew that the best life wasn't one that the world could provide. The best life is the one that produces the most joy, the most happiness, the most fulfillment. And the Apostle Paul, it was something so much greater. In our passage, thankfully, Paul gives us that clarity. In the book of Philippians, he gives us this answer. For the believer, we have a new perspective. We have a new lens that we can see the world through. One that is not based upon our own selfish motives. An outlook on life that is not driven by the cares and the passions that the world says will fulfill because we know they won't. For the believer, for those of us who know Christ in this room, and I, I don't want to assume that everyone in this room actually has a saving relationship with Christ, but if you do, let me remind you of what took place in your life. According to John chapter 3, Jesus describes that when you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you are born again. You are regenerated. That is to say that you were once unborn and through the Spirit's work inside of you, when you came to the knowledge of your salvation, you were given life. You were brought into a spiritual realm where you actually know and you understand and you can move and you can breathe Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2, that you, we were all dead in the trespasses of our sins. But God, in his love, showed us grace. He made us alive together in him. In this newness of life that we have, as new creatures, with new plans, with new desires, we are also given new eyes. 
new eyes to see. And in these new eyes, we're given a new perspective on life. A perspective that shapes everything, every struggle, every circumstance, every reality, even death itself. The Apostle Paul understood this. This was a man that was so shaped, was so moved by the gospel. He was so impacted by Christ. And everything in his life was motivated by a deep and profound love for Jesus Christ. It was the truth about Christ that shaped his perspectives on life. And that is certainly true for us. That is a principle that we need to remember is that our truth shapes our perspectives. Our theology will shape our outlook on life. Truth about God, truth about man, truth about life. This universe will give us clarity by which to see and to know what is actually taking place. When we have the right perspective, when we have this right outlook on life, we can know how to live the best life. And this is not a sermon on five ways to live your best life, church. This is one simple and clear point. You want to live the best life. Paul gives us that right here in Philippians chapter 1. He says in verse 20 that whether by life or by death, Paul's desire is to honor Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it is in this that Paul would find his joy, his fulfillment, his motivation to live his life. And that is the point of our sermon today. It is so clear. Why do we need this passage, church? Because the best life that you could possibly live is the life where Jesus is everything to you. The most fulfilling life that you and I could have in this world is not one that the world can answer. It is the one where Jesus Christ is everything. This was Paul. Consumed by a passion and affection for Christ. Everything he did was under this influence. Is Christ honored? And when Christ is everything to you, church, everything changes. To the believer who has been saved by the blood of Christ, who has been purchased by his sacrifice on your behalf, Christ will inevitably be everything to you. Because he gave up everything for you. And when Christ is everything to you, when you recognize that, when you believe that, the way that you see the world changes. You gain new perspective on life. And our passage in Philippians chapter 1 will actually see four perspectives four new perspectives for the believer when Christ is everything to you. But before we dive into that, I also want to remind you of this, that if Christ is not everything to you, the way that you see things in this life, your perspective on this world 
is going to be much different than that of the believer. And we're going to take a look at that now. When Christ is everything to you, you gain a new perspective. And the first perspective that you gain is a new perspective on suffering. New perspective on suffering. At the end of verse 18, Paul says, yes, I will rejoice. Let's stop there. What do we need to remind ourselves of here in Philippians? We need to remind ourselves that Paul is not sitting on a beach on the Mediterranean Sea, hanging out with the other apostles, enjoying life in their luxurious mansion, right? Just surfing the waves, snorkeling, just having the the time of their lives. And man, I rejoice because God is good. Now, where's the apostle Paul at? He is imprisoned in Rome. He's in chains, chained to a Roman guard. Chains not because he's a criminal, but chained because of his faithfulness to God and to Jesus Christ. And as he is there, he is now writing out letters to these churches, trying to encourage them and remind them that although there is suffering in his life, there is so much joy in the midst of that. And, the, and the, the source of this joy was not just a general joy that, oh, God is good, and I, because he's good, I have joy. If you guys look in the verses prior to this, the joy that Paul had was because Christ was proclaimed. The gospel was advancing in ways that he never even imagined. In verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so much so that It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It was through Paul's suffering. It was through Paul's imprisonment, specifically here, that the gospel reached places that he only dreamed it would. Even to the ear of the emperor. That is crazy. That is wild that God would use one man's suffering to produce advancement in the gospel in such ways. And Paul, because of this witness in his life, because he saw that through God's sovereignty in bringing him in otherwise harsh conditions, Christ would be proclaimed. And he wants to encourage the believers, hey, I have joy. There's so much joy in this life. There is so much joy even in the midst of this persecution And the reason I have joy is because the gospel wins. It's because there is victory in Christ. And no shackles, no chains, no beatings, no scourgings, no hardships in this life will ever take that away from me. It was Paul's prayer earlier in Philippians 1 where he's thanking God. He's rejoicing, praising God for the Philippian church. Man, if I'm in prison... I don't know about you guys, but naturally my desire, if I'm going to write a letter to you guys, is not to write saying, hey, I'm joyful. Hey, thank you, Lord, for you guys. You guys are amazing. My initial thoughts upon writing a letter from prison is this. Help me get out of here. I need help. I need prayer. It's all about me. It's all about myself. Please bring some food. I'm really hungry. You know, I would love, you know, what's some good food here? Some teriyaki. I don't know. That was just the first thing I thought of. But not Paul. His perspective on suffering has changed. And the deeper he knew Christ, the deeper he would have the right thinking, the right mindset upon his suffering. The wrong perspective would be one of, you are everything. 
What would the world say about suffering, church? What would we naturally in our flesh say about suffering? What would be our perspective? It would be avoid any displeasure or suffering at all costs. Only do hard things when there is value or benefit to yourself or to bring you success. If there is persecution, you probably deserve it. It's shameful. It makes you look bad. For a believer to be in jail doesn't make Christ look good. Don't forsake the pleasures of this life over something spiritual. It's not worth it. But Paul says the right perspective here is one, that when suffering comes in your life as a believer, there is joy and there is purpose. In prison, chained to a Roman guard, yet despite his persecution, the gospel advanced and progressed in ways that Paul found so much joy in. What we need to remember about suffering from these verses in verses 19 and 20 is as Paul speaks on, he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul reminds us that suffering is temporary. Suffering is not something that is eternal. And as believers, we need to remind ourselves of this, that Paul is certain that he would be delivered. The word there is soteria, it is salvation. And scholars debate, is this a physical deliverance from jail or is it a spiritual deliverance to depart and be with God forever and to be with Christ in heaven? I do think the believers were praying in Philippi for Paul to be released from prison physically. I think they longed for Paul to return. And I do think Paul, that was his desire. As we see all the way down in verse 26, that Paul does desire to go back and be with them again. At the same time, I do believe Paul is, based on the context here, as we'll later look at, also playing a little bit in his words. He's using a play on words. Is that he's also speaking of a deliverance. That although if it wouldn't be in his life, he would be delivered in his death. And actually that deliverance, as he'll go on to speak, is much greater than the deliverance in his life. But regardless, what we need to remember is what Paul remembered. Is that although he suffered in tremendous ways, it was temporary. It was not eternal. It would come to an end. And Paul would remember the bigger picture of his spiritual deliverance from this world to be with Christ. Not only that, we need to remember that suffering is worth it. It is worth it. As it is my eager expectation in verse 20, what is Paul's eager expectation? What is his hope? That he would not be ashamed at all, that he would have full courage as always, that in his suffering that Christ would be honored. And I know this is kind of the thrust of the sermon. This is the, the center, the nucleus of this passage is that Christ would be honored. The word honored is the word for magnified. That when people would look at Paul in his suffering, Paul's prayer, his hope, his expectation that, that he would be courageous, that he would be bold, and that people would look at him and see the joy of his life, and that Christ would be magnified in that. Man, I get upset when my order's wrong at McDonald's. I get upset when my coffee is too bold. We get flustered. We get irritated over the most insignificant things in our life. Yet Paul is in prison for Christ. 
and the least of his worries was his own comforts, his own pleasures. All he desired was that Christ would be honored and that he would be honored whether by life or by his death. If that means he would stay in jail and ultimately be killed, which we know what would happen in his second imprisonment, or if he would be set free. And that leads us to our second perspective. Our second perspective, when Christ is everything, you gain a new perspective on death. As we read in verse 21, the famous verse, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. The world would say something different. When they hear that, they're like, whoa, to die is gain. How is death something that is better than life? How is it something that is greater, superior? The word there is actually one of power and dominion. It's similar, the same word actually that Paul uses later in chapter 3. That whatever gain I had in verse 7, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. The world will look at that and say that is foolishness. They would say that death is something that we should probably fear because we don't know what comes out after it. Do everything you can to live a life that is long and as full as possible because this is it. Do all that you can to, to leave a legacy of yourself because when you are dead, you won't be remembered otherwise. Unless you do something big or influential. But Paul's perspective here is this. Death is not something that we need to fear. It's not something that he did fear because he knew what would await him. Paul knew what awaited him after death. Paul knew, and the perspective that he had on death was not one, that death was the end. The outlook on death through Jesus Christ was this, that death is just a transition to eternity. It is the doorway, I've heard it said, the gate to eternal life. It is the means that God uses to transfer us from this physical reality here into a much greater physical, heavenly, spiritual reality that will last eternally. For Paul, so much of his motivation behind his life was driven from this future inheritance. So much of Philippians is, is established on this promise that the resurrection will happen. Not just the resurrection of Christ, that proved that the resurrection is true, that it is real, but the resurrection of the believer upon death. This is what motivated Paul. This is what drove him in his life. It's what caused him to consider all things in his life to be rubbish. It was what Paul saw that gave him so much confidence, so much hope in his life. That not even death could diminish that because he knew death would actually grant him that. So much courage that it even made him otherwise foolish in the eyes of the world, even in the church. That a man would risk his life for Christ. Hey, church, this encourages me greatly not to be foolish with my life. Not to be some sort of suicidal mindset that I just need to be dead and be with Christ because that's gain. But the mindset of one simply that because Christ is better, because our reward is better, there is a level of risk that we can take in our life for the gospel. 
And certainly it's worth it because Christ is worth it. I mean, if we're going to risk anything in this life, wouldn't it be something that actually has eternal value? This was the Apostle Paul. Death was not the end, it was gain. It was not loss, it was reward. Paul longed to enter into the gates of heaven. He's struggling in this this passage you can see in verses 22 and 23. You can just see the toil within him. He's hard-pressed between the two to stay and to depart and be with Christ. He says that is far better. That is Paul's greatest desire is to be with Christ. And he longed to, to approach heaven. He desired to stand before the Lord. And church, I want us to just wrap our minds around that day when we will be there. The same desire that Paul had when we would hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul longed for the day when he would no longer suffer, certainly. Where he would no longer have to battle his flesh and sin. When he would see wickedness and evil. He longed for the day when He would have no more desire for the things of this world when he would have more wealth than imaginable, when he would walk the streets of gold, when he would be with his other brothers and sisters in Christ who had died before him, when he would be in the kingdom of God with God's people praising God forevermore. What a day that will be. Yet in light of all of these things, what is it that Paul desired more More than all of that, what was the true gain of the Apostle Paul? And he says it is this, it is better and it is my desire to depart and to be with Christ. This was the real gain. To be in the presence of Christ. To be with him. This was his greatest desire. It was wrapped up in the person of Christ. This is the treasure of heaven, the gem of eternal life. And may we never forget this church, that having a relationship with our king himself is the greatest reward that we could have. You know that one day his relationship with Christ would be so much better because it would transition from a relationship established and rooted in faith and it would be one that would be established and rooted in sight. To be with Christ is much better, is it not? Like a husband who longs to be with his wife. Like a father who longs to be with his children. Like a pastor who longs to be with his people. So much greater our desire is to be and want to be with Christ. There's a fascinating quote that I found, a couple quotes, one by Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Oh, to think of heaven without Christ. It is the same thing as thinking of hell. Heaven without Christ, it is day without the sun. Existing without life, feasting without food, seeing without light. It involves a contradiction in terms. Heaven without Christ, absurd. It is the sea without water, the earth without its fields, the heavens without their stars. There cannot be heaven without Christ. He is the sum total of bliss, the fountain from which heaven flows, the element of which heaven is composed. Christ is heaven and heaven is Christ. Do we often think that way? Or do we think about heaven as being 
our gain and just simply our deliverance from hell. It's so much more than that, church. It's so much more than that. It's the field that has the pearl that we give up everything, and the pearl is Christ himself. Martin Luther goes on to say, very similarly, I had rather be in hell with Christ than in heaven without him. Wow. Just let that sink in real quick. This is how valuable Christ is. This is how precious he is to Paul. And I pray that it would be our same mindset and our same perspective that, man, guys, heaven is worth it because Christ is there. We don't need to fear death. If you're not a believer, however, you should fear death because this reward is not for you. Our third perspective that we find here, third perspective in verses 21 and 22 is a new perspective on life. When Christ is everything to you, believer, you gain a new perspective on life. The life that you once lived was all about you. It's how I can make it furthest, most successful. I care mostly for myself, my own priorities, even at the expense of others. I want others to serve me, not to serve others. But the right perspective is one that says life is not about you. In fact, it's all about Christ. In the light of eternity, in light of the gain and the reward that awaits those in Christ in heaven, this should dramatically affect the life that we now live on the earth. Look at what Paul writes. He says, for me to live is Christ in verse 21. The equation is simple. If I'm to live, for me to live in this life, that infinitive to live equals is Christ. A lot of us in this room maybe would rather say for me to live, or maybe your life would say for me to live is Seahawks. Or me, for me to live is the Mariners, which I'm not hating on the Mariners. Don't get me wrong. Let's go. Let's go, M's. But may it never be that our life, when people look at it, or even if we do self-examination, that our life would be equivalent to something outside or something much lesser than Christ himself. That the things that we wear, the way that we look, the way that we walk, the way that we talk, all of that would dictate and come to a peak, a pinnacle, and that it would all point to that our life is wrapped up in the person and the work of Christ. That we would imitate Christ. That we would live by faith, and that's what Paul picks up on as he says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. It's very similar wording, actually, to what we find in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, if I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This was a man, this was an individual who was so motivated by Christ. He goes on to say that I have been crucified with Christ and that the life that Paul would live, it is no longer his life. What a profound statement. What a, a bold and moving statement to make. May we be like that. 
that we could say with confidence that it was Christ, that it is Christ, that our lives reflect. The way that we do that is living by faith. Paul says back in Philippians that if I'm to live by the flesh, that means fruitful labor. Just to clarify a little bit more that what does this life as Christ actually look like? And he says, fruitful labor. He uses imagery for us. The same word used earlier in chapter one, verse 11, at the end of Paul's prayer to the believers, he desired that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And certainly when we hear fruit, there's many passages that maybe come to mind. John 15, which speaks of the vine and the vineyard, the vine dresser, and how the father desires and is glorified when we as his disciples bear much fruit. Galatians chapter 5 speaks of the multidimensional fruit that the believers bear in their life that is produced by the Spirit at work within them. And if Paul was to live, this was his purpose. He was to see fruit produced, fruitful labor, not labor that is in vain. Not a life that is worthless, not a life that is meaningless, but a life that actually has results. And the results are those that are found in the church. And in order for this to happen, in order for us to have this same mindset, the same perspective that Paul has, that we would actually have purpose in this world, Christ must be everything to us. Far too often we let our pride, let our selfishness creep in and cloud our judgment. Clouding those lenses that we're trying to see things through in this life. Like any good farmer, when he sees his master's field ready to be plowed in conditions that would promise much crop, he is obligated to do this work. And it ought to be the greatest joy of his life to do this for his master. We must remember that God has entrusted to us a life that is fruitful, that is promising because not how great we are, not because we're so cool and that we're awesome, but because the seeds that we're planting in the hearts and lives of other people actually will provide fruit. That's what the gospel does. And that leads us to our fourth and final perspective. Be quick through this. The fourth perspective, when Christ is everything to you, believer, you gain a new perspective on others. As Christ is your life, as Christ is everything to you, and how he is shaping how you see life, it will dictate how you see other people. It will, it will influence how you even see the church and ministry. The fruitful labor of ministry happens here. It happens in the local church. And the Apostle Paul understood this. He understood also that the wrong perspective that he once had was this, that I desire to be served. I desire to be with me, myself, and to enjoy this life and to just pull away knowing that I've been saved. I'm gonna isolate now from the world. I do what I want and there is no one who says anything otherwise. But to the believer that belongs to Christ. And that can truly say with confidence that Christ is everything to them. 
this is true, the priority of their life ought to be Christ's priority. If we want to think like Paul, if we want to have this same perspective as Paul, we can imitate Paul. We can, we can say these similar words, but not that can change us. There is someone, there is something that is so much greater even than the Apostle Paul, and it is actually Christ himself. That if we want to have the right perspective on other people, we need to have the perspective of Paul that was the same perspective of Christ himself. The Christ that says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And to close, I want us just to, to direct our eyes to Philippians chapter two, just a little bit further down, because I know I'm not gonna get through, to preach through Philippians to you guys, church. I gotta do that with the youth. But let's look at chapter two, starting in verse three, to just have this mindset, to have this perspective and outlook on life. Look at what Paul says as he encourages the believers, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is the key, church, verse five. Look down. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the perspective that we need to have, church. The perspective that is not focused on self, but is focused on other people because it is the same mindset that Christ had. The perspective that we have on life ought to reflect the perspectives of Christ. And I want to show you that quickly, that Christ had a perspective on suffering. And his perspective on suffering was that he was a selfless and submissive man. That he would suffer for the sake of you and me. He had a perspective on death. Here in Philippians 2, we see it. That Christ, his perspective on death was one as an obedient son and a perfect substitute. He had a perspective on life and it was one of a humble servant as I read in Mark 10, 45. And we see a perspective on other people in Christ, one of an example worth following. What was the focus of Christ? What is the focus of Christ? It's not for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. What Christ would say is this church, for me to live is the Father. And to die is gain for his glory and for the salvation of the church. That is why we can say with confidence, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because of what he believed. As Christ submits to the Father and lives his life for his glory, we submit ourselves to Christ in a similar way, in the same way. And what Christ cares now most about, what Christ's priorities are in his life need to be ours. And what are they? It's the church. And that's what Paul would go on to say, that he's convinced that it is more necessary to remain, to see the church 
progress, to see them advance, to see them grow. And not only that, he wants to see them have more joy in the faith. And the result of all of this in verse 26 is that so that through the life of Paul, they would have more cause, more reason to glorify Christ. This is what it's all for. All for the glory of our Lord. For believers, and even myself in studying this, I pray that this is, and hope that this has been an encouraging text for you. And oftentimes we need to take off our spiritual lenses, our glasses, and we need to give them a good cleaning and put them back on and now see the world and see all these things rightly. And I pray that this passage is a reminder for us of that. For the unbeliever, for the one that does not believe, you're gonna see these things differently. You're gonna see the world much differently. You're gonna see suffering much differently in death itself. I plead that you would see Christ, that you would know Christ and, and even consider what he has done for you and the cost that was involved. And upon seeing that, that you would understand his grace, his love, and the glory that he has bestowed for now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text of scripture. We need it, God, because we need to be reminded that through Christ, there is a new outlook that we have on life. We gain new perspectives in how we see things. Lord, it's only through your son that we can even consider our eternity with you. It's your son who was humbled, who took on the form of a servant, who took on human flesh, and in doing so became our perfect substitute on our behalf. He was the one that lived the life that we could not live in perfect righteousness and died the death that we could not die. And he is more valuable than any life and anyone and anything in this life or in the life to come. May he be our greatest joy, our greatest treasure and encouragement as we live this life now for you, God, and for you alone. I pray all this in your son's glorious name. Amen.